0: Welcome, everybody, to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Doctor Andy Work, guys. I'm here today with a legend, the one and only Doctor Doug Mater. If you don't know uh, Doctor Mater, he uh, he he wrote the book on exotic animal medicine. The guy has been elected the speaker of the year for exotics at the V.M.X. conference, which is one of the largest conferences in the world something like seven times. It's incredible. And when you listen to this uh, interview, you're going to find out why because he knows his stuff, and he breaks it down in a super useful, uh, tangible way. I'm not a big exotics vet. It's a weakness of mine, and I'm very upfront about that. And so uh, whether you do exotics all day, every day, and you're just looking for pearls from the master, or whether you're not real comfortable with exotics, and you want to get the basics and understand the fundamentals, gosh, this is a great episode. Thank you to Dr. Major for being here. Guys, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Doug Mater. Thanks for being here. Dr. Rourke, um, thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. It's quite an honor. Oh man, please. Well, call me Andy. I've I've been a fan of yours for... uh, about 15, t- almost 20 years now. I uh, I was aware of you in vet school because I went to Florida and your uh, practices in, uh, was a Marathon, Florida, right? Yeah. And uh, you would take externs down there and the people who went got to do these incredible things and you worked on alligators and sea turtles and just amazing stuff. And then I've seen you lecture a number of times. Uh, you have been the speaker of the year at VMX, which is like one of the biggest vet conferences in the world, seven times for exotics. I mean, you—you've uh, got a book coming out in June. You—you uh, you have, first of all, you have an amazing career. Um, and you are also an excellent teacher. So uh, so th- thank you for taking time to be here. I really appreciate it. It's quite an honor to
1: be invited. Thank
0: you. Well, I've got um, I've got a case for you, and so I have to start with full disclosure. Uh, exotics are a weakness of mine. And I am a general practice doctor, and so they come across my, uh, my desk, and I want to be competent and at least get people started and do help where I can do help. And so it's in that. So just know that that's my background, but I am coming to you with a case that I uh, am looking at, and I was wondering if I could uh, walk you through it. All right. All right. I have got a uh, a bearded dragon. This, uh, this pet was purchased from a pet store. Uh, it's about six months old and the owners have brought it in and they're not sure what's going on with it and it's shaking and it can't walk. And they, they're, you know, I, I'm not, they're telling me that, that it's, it's, it's also not eating. I've taken some radiographs. I don't really know what I'm looking at, to be honest. I don't see anything obvious, you know, that, that, I mean, it, it it seems to me to be relatively decent. It doesn't look like an emaciated uh, lizard that hasn't eaten in an extended amount of time to me. But that's kind of what I'm looking at. Can you help me get started in this case and at least take it in a useful direction?
1: All right, that's good to know. Um, there are a lot of, uh, especially with bearded dragons, there are some diseases of, of high concern, uh, such as at adenovirus that hits them when they're about four months of age and anywhere between four and 11 months of age, and it shows up as kind of a chronic wasting. Uh, Oftentimes they develop some neurologic symptoms, they can't walk, and of course they don't eat. But usually these animals are emaciated when they're advanced. And what you're describing sounds more almost acute in terms of the anorexia, the hyporexia. Um, So young growing animals, especially insectivores and um, herbivores like uh, iguanas, um, and insectivores, of course, like the bearded dragons, of course, keep in mind beardies also eat a lot of, uh, vegetation, um, mm-hmm. uh, and then insectivores like chameleons, for instance, we see this frequently in those, um, you have to worry about something called nutritional metabolic bone disease or the proper term, the veterinary term is nutritional secondary hyperparathyroidism. Okay. Um, if I could jump on my, uh, my high horse here for a minute, and that is you hear veterinarians talk about MBD. Metabolic bone disease, and there is no such thing as MBD. MBD is a category. Uh, Metabolic bone disease, for instance, um, covers a whole variety of different metabolic pathologies of the bones, like osteoporosis, osteomalacia, panosteitis, hypotrophic osteodystrophy, and a whole litany of them. The two main ones that we are that we deal with, and especially with reptiles, is nutritional secondary hyperparathyroidism, which uh, I coined the term NMBD uh, years ago, and then the other one is in adult animals, and that's renal secondary hyperparathyroidism, or RMBD. So based on what you told me, you know, we have to kind of like look at the obvious, right? Okay. If it's hoof uh, hoofbeats, you think horse first. A young growing insectivore, uh, less than a year of age, they're on a rapid growth phase, um, they're they're having difficulty ambulating. Um, they're not eating well. Uh, we have to assume. And I, you're you're in South Carolina, right? Correct. So I'd imagine in the winter it gets cold, yeah. not like where I live here, where it's 85 degrees in the winter. Right. All right. And we have sunshine year round. So we're probably looking at nutritional secondary hyperparathyroidism, which is NMBD. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's by far the most common cause. So so how does that fit your patient? Um, NMBD, it, it, it's a triad of vitamin D3 from the sun, okay. um, calcium in the diet, and temperature. Um, one of the big things that, that a lot of people tend to neglect is temperature. And I, I'm going to use the iguana as an example because um, we, we have wild iguanas in my yard where I live on, on the island. And you will not uncommonly see them out basking. Okay. And it can be 95 degrees outside. And if you go and catch that animal and you take a core body temperature, just take a thermometer, dog and cat thermometer, and, and slide it in the cloaca carefully, the body temperature is going to be 105. Okay. So everybody assumes, well, these are cold-blooded animals, so the body temperature is going to be the same as the ambient temperature, and it never is. So if they have proper husbandry, if their cages are set up right with, with focal heat spots and, and warming areas, I hate to use the term hot rock. Yeah because they're dangerous, but if you have it like a heating area, so they have a thermal uh, gradient in their cage, they, via temperature regulation, just behavior, they will thermoregulate. And typically their body temperature is much higher than the ambient temperature of the air. So getting back to that, the iguana's ambient normal temperature range is 88 to 104 degrees. So... You live in South Carolina. They have a pet iguana. They have a pet bearded dragon. They let it run around the house. Okay, well, what's the temperature in your house? Well, you know, room right. temperature. We yeah. have the heater on. It's, you know, 68 degrees. Yeah. The 88 degrees is the low end for the iguana. And guess what, Andy? Right. That, that vitamin D pathway, reptiles need vitamin D3, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you remember your, your physiochemistry, there's that whole cycle where sunshine hits the skin it changes ergocalciferol and the Mm calicalciferol. it it goes to the the liver where it becomes calciferol, and then it goes to the kidney where it becomes calciferol. and those reactions they're enzymatic reactions and they have a temperature peak okay the the temperature at which it gets the second hydroxylation is 88 degrees. Okay. So if you're keeping that iguana or you're keeping that bearded dragon in your house at 72 degrees or 68 degrees or wherever you set your thermometer, right? Even if you give them proper lighting, even if you give them proper calcium in the diet, they're too cold. Right. And they can't metabolize the vitamin D. If they can't have a t- metabolize the vitamin D to the active form of D3, they're not going to absorb the calcium from the GI tract. Yeah. So people forget how complicated it is. It's really really basic. But it's really important. So all of the DVM degrees that we have aren't going to help if the owner doesn't meet husbandry. Yeah. So getting back to your question, you need to talk to the client, find out, okay, how do you house this animal? Okay. okay. First off, you need to know what the normal temperature range is for a bearded dragon. So it should be somewhere between 80 and 90. They're not nearly as hot as an iguana. Animal, okay. okay. So if they're keeping it in their house and it's not 80 degrees, it's not going to grow properly because it can't process right all right what are you feeding it oh we're feeding it crickets okay that's not their natural diet in the wild these guys are heavy herbivores they eat a lot of vegetables okay um they do eat some crickets and you'll find a lot of vegetables will just sell crickets and you say okay well crickets are on a balanced diet and then the client will tell you okay well we got load the crickets well again that's a contrived diet Um, You know, there's a lot of different insects available, and I don't have a time in this podcast. Maybe I can come back and we can talk about nutrition. Yeah, Uh, but the bottom line is they need to be feeding a balanced diet. So let's just put it, put encapsulate that for now. Okay, they have to have the right temperature, the right diet. Then they have to have the proper lighting, and the UVB lights are extremely important. And the UVB range is about two ninety to three twenty, and all of these reptile bulbs that are on the market. You know, they have UVA, UVB, and UVC in it. Uh And interestingly enough, if you can see my hands, so let's say this is a light, the amount of UVB that's produced by a bulb this big is only in the center about 2%. Gotcha. That's it. And that only travels about 18 inches. So if they've got a light on the ceiling, Mm -hmm. or it's old light, they wear out, the phosphors wear out on the inside, it doesn't produce any UVB. Gotcha. So again, everything interacts with itself. a big part of what you do as a doctor when you talk to this client is you got to play detective. you got to get all these facts because you can give them all the right medicine. And I can tell you what dose and what milligram to give. But if they don't do their homework, everything you do is not going to work. Right. And then they get to sit with you as the vet because I spent all this money and it's still not getting better. Well, you know, you did everything right, but it's a teamwork. Okay. So- X-rays. Okay. Sometimes it's hard to tell. You take an X-ray, and some of these reptiles, especially like the bearded dragons, is they've got all those spikes and thorns yeah. and you know everything. It's hard to see what's on the inside. It really is. Okay. So if you if you can't tell, don't feel bad because a lot of us can't tell, especially in young growing animals. They don't have fully calcified bones anyway right. because they're still young and growing. But then if you add in on top of that, an animal that's got nutritional and metabolic bone disease. The bones are softer and they're not as radio dense, so it's hard to assess, okay? Gotcha. So things like pathological spinal fractures, which may be why it's not walking, you may not see it um, just because it's it's really hard to see. Yeah. So don't feel bad about that. So um, I'm glad you took the radiographs because oftentimes if they got really good bones, that's important, but oftentimes it's kind of iffy, so it can be a challenge. Um, other things that you can do, you know, I hear about veterinarians, well, let's take some blood and do an ionized calcium. Okay, you can do that. Uh, I'm a pet owner, too, and I'm actually a retired veterinarian now, so when my pets get sick, I got to go to the doctor, and I do look at the cost, mm-hmm. all right? So, uh, you know, do we need to run an ionized calcium? That's an expensive test. Or do we say, young, growing herbivore in South Carolina that's housed inappropriately, come on. Yeah. <laughs> if you hear the hoofbeats, beats, it's going to be nutritional metabolic bone disease. We can run an ionized calcium so that we can go, ooh. I'm a good exotic vet because I ran an ionized calcium. You don't need to do that. Yeah. Respect your client's wallet. No respect you for that too. Okay, it's not going to change how you're going to treat
0: this. Yeah, that was okay. my question: is is am no. I getting information there that's going to change how I treat it?
1: No, not at all. Okay. You're going to go, oh, it's slow. <laughs> it's slow. I'm so <laughs> okay. brilliant. Okay, gotcha. come on. Um, yeah, you can do it. There's, you know, if you got the, you know, the titanium American Express card, the client says do everything, do it. Do you need to do it? No. Gotcha. I wouldn't do okay. it. Okay, so blood work, you know, usually you can run a CBC CAM. That's nice. I don't think you need to. Okay, okay. again, look at what's in front of you. Use your experience or rely on, on what you've learned from other people. Um, if you suspect this animal is ill, that's different. Like if you think he might be septic, you know, let's run a blood work. Let's look at the leukocyte morphology. Um, let's go and get a PCV, e, make sure that he's not anemic. Um, yeah, I mean, blood's nice backup. And I do like to do blood work. I think it's important. Can you still treat this animal without it? Yes. If the client is financially restricted, yeah, you can treat it without
0: it. Hey, guys, I got to jump in here real quick with just a couple of quick updates. First, uh, I got to give some love to Banfield the Pet Hospital. Guys, they've been uh, making possible transcripts for this podcast uh, for a while. They're doing it for the whole year. Uh, it is something that, uh, that I really want to have happen, and it's something they stepped up in the name of uh, increasing accessibility and inclusion uh, in our profession and providing information so that everybody can have access to it. So anyway, it was a wonderful thing that they did not have to do, that they said was their mission, and then they followed through and really made this thing possible. So anyway, uh, spread the word uh, for anyone who would take advantage of uh, transcripts of the episodes. We are so happy to offer them. You can find them at Uh There's links in the show notes below down to that. Uh, guys, uh, let's see, what else have we got going on? We have got over on the uncharted veterinary podcast your podcast listener you might be interested in the other podcast that I host with my friend uh, Stephanie Goss. Last week we did an episode on what happens when your direct boss's style is the polar opposite of yours. How do you survive? How do you bridge the gap? How do you work effectively? If that's of interest to you, check out the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, the link in the show notes. This week came out yesterday. We're talking about do you really need an online pharmacy and uh, and how do you make it worth your while? So anyway, guys, those are some episodes over Uncharted Started veterinary podcast. Take a listen, see if they're for you. With that, let's get back into this episode.
1: All right. So where are we going to go with this? Number one, and this is where your technicians are really important. Okay. And make sure your technicians are well versed with this. And 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 you said you're you're not 100 comfortable with exotics. Well, when you start getting into exotics, it's a good idea to get a good technician that's got a good background in it, understands the biology and the husbandry, pay them really well. Yep. And they are going to save you a ton of money and make you a ton of money. Okay. And the clients are going to love it because they're a source of information. Um, they're great support for veterinarians. We, we all need really good technicians. Agreed. So you get the technician in there to talk to them and educate them. And then you can go off and see your next client. So they're going to discuss the husbandry. And we already talked about that, you know, temperature, uh, diet um, and light those are extremely important. Okay, what can we do medically? If the animal has pathological fractures, which oftentimes they do because they have soft bones right. because of the calcium deficiencies, analgesics, you know, we tend to forget that animals hurt. So, if we see an animal that let's say has a broken limb and that's not uncommon or even a broken back, and I'm going to I'm going to circle back to that in a second, okay. but you know, analgesics and, you know, NSAIDs, there's nothing wrong with giving NSAIDs. I like ketophen personally. Um, I know a lot of people use meloxicam. I don't know that you need to jump into the opioids but I, I certainly use a lot of NSAIDs from these guys. Um, supplements uh, make sure they get calories. There's a lot of good commercial uh, herbivore and um, insectivore diets on the market. Uh, I don't need to mention names, but we all know who the big players are and they're excellent. They're great diets. Vitamin D3 supplements. Um, there are some very good commercial reptile vitamin supplements, but when you get them, make sure you get one that has D3 in it. Okay. Um, you also want to give an oral calcium supplement, and there are multiple different types. And the best ones are the liquid ones. Unfortunately, they stopped making them. So they pretty much all come as a uh, tablet now, which you can have compounded through any of the compounding pharmacies into a liquid. Okay. And the only reason I say that is because, A, they're easier to give, you can flavor them like a banana or something like that, and B, the liquid forms tend to be more bioavailable. Okay. For instance, calcium gluconate, if you give it in the liquid form, is about 60% bioavailable, whereas calcium gluconate is only around 10 to 20% bioavailable. Okay. So give a good calcium supplement that the owner can give. If, if they try and give the calcium supplement and the, the, the patient fights it, we both know the owner's not going to give it. Yep. Okay. So- Analgesics if needed, calcium supplements, uh, absolutely necessary. Vitamin D3 supplement, absolutely necessary. Um, If the animal has some pathology, let's say it's got a a long bone fracture like a femur or a humerus, um, put a splint on it. Um, You know, a wiggling bone is very painful. And these splints shouldn't be big and bulky. A simple paper tape splint around the humerus or the femur or the distal limb really makes that animal comfortable by mobilizing the fracture. And it can take them six to eight weeks or more to heal. Okay. And one of the other things that works really well too is you take them out of the cage or get a smaller cage and limit their mobility. In other words, you don't want that bearded dragon feeling better uh, and then crawl up a rock and then slip and fall down and re-injure it. So yeah. So limit their mobility. Oftentimes they'll put them in a smaller terrarium until they're healed. Now, I just want to bring up the, the chronic case. And you're going to have some of these where you have got the Gold Star client that does everything Dr. Andy tells them to do. I mean, they, they worship you, and everything you say, they write it down, they go home, and they do it, and that animal's still not like getting better. Right? Chronic nutritional secondary hyperparathyroidism results because when the calcium levels drop, I won't go too deep in the physiology, the parathormone level, PTH, increases. And that's an emergency response by the body to make sure that there's enough circulating calcium in the, bod, in the blood because you need that for nerve conduction, things like heartbeat, which is kind of important. And so the body will sacrifice the calcium in the bone, mobilize it so that it's circulating and ionized to keep the nerves moving, the brain functioning, the heart functioning, and things like that. Well, what happens is parathyroid hormone is extremely powerful. And the only thing that can turn it off is uh, elevated calcium levels or elevated calcitonin levels. Okay. Cal- calcitonin will shut off the parathyroid. I mean, completely cut off parathyroid production from the brain. Okay. So in human medicine, they use something called Salmon calcitonin. And myocalcin is a trade name. And in these chronic, chronic cases where you do everything right, the client does everything right, but the animals are still, they're just, their bones are staying like Gumby. They're not getting better. You need to break the parathyroid hormone uh, influence. And salmon calcitonin does two things. Number one, it's a, a, a powerful bone analgesic. It's used a lot in women with osteoporosis that get uh, lordosis and spinal fractures, and they're in intense pain. Salmon calcitonin takes that pain away. And number two, and this is the biggie, is that salmon calcitonin is a PTH antagonist. And so you can give all the vitamin D, all the supplements of calcium you want, and that PTH is still being produced because the body thinks it's in crisis until you give the salmon calcitonin, and then all of a sudden it shuts off, just like that. I mean, literally, you will see a difference in a week or two. Wow. And the downside of it is it's very expensive because it's a human drug. But if you get those chronic cases where the client wants to do everything, Salmon calcitonin is going to be the savior. And the doses are in Carpenter's book, and it's, you can find it in my book. It's everywhere. But anyway, that's, that's the last therapeutic i'd
0: recommend right all right let's let's just talk about a couple other things did you have a question no i I was going to ask so so generally you know um we talked about you know if you've got a long bone fracture you know six to eight weeks uh in in healing and and we talk about these chronic cases how how long should i I like to set realistic expectations for for the pet owners as well. So when are when are they going to start to to notice uh, improvement in the symptoms in their uh, in their bearded dragon? So for example, if we can uh, correct the, the the temperature problems, and I'm I'm making sure that we're controlling pain, that we're we're getting good calories, we've got some some D3 supplementation, some some uh, calcium supplementation, we're, we're doing all the things. Um, how quickly do do we expect for pet owners to see significant improvement? I, I just I don't want them to I don't want them to have wildly out of whack expectations.
1: I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked it. I was going to get to it, but I'm glad you brought it up because I'm sure others are thinking the same thing. Remember, these are reptiles; They do everything slow. Right. And, you know, where you might treat a dog or a cat or a bird, and you'll see some improvement in a couple three days, it's not going to happen that fast in a reptile. You gotta give it at least four weeks. Okay. I tell clients four weeks and you're gonna start seeing a turnaround. So don't get frustrated a week and a half, two weeks down the road and think nothing's working. It probably is, you're just not seeing it. So please trust me, follow the instructions, and in a month we're gonna be doing a happy dance. Yeah. Okay. Full healing, depending on how bad it is, and depending on, on how advanced it is when you catch it, three, maybe six months. But most of these animals come back completely back to normal. Some of them will have some deformities. They may have some angular limb deformities from their long bones. Sometimes they get that bowing in the jaw. Mm -hmm. They call it rubber jaw. It's the the term that came from primate medicine years ago. But they're fine. You know, they have a kind of a quirky look to them, but they're still great pets and they're fully functional. Uh, Excuse me. I do want to mention a couple other things too. And that is one of the knee-jerk responses that a lot of veterinarians give, and this goes back in the literature back literally to the 70s, and you know how it is. When something's in the literature that's correct, it's really hard to get people to buy into it. You put something in the literature that's wrong, everybody I believes it. it and it's like wildfire. So back in the 70s, it was published that when these animals come in, you put them on injectable calcium because it increases their calcium quicker. Yeah, Absolutely, positively not. Think back when you were a kid and you fell off the bike and broke your arm. Did the doctor give you injectable right. calcium? Right.
0: No. Whoa. No.
1: No. They sent you home on a quality diet of cast and some good vitamins, you know, and you get better. Same thing. You don't use injectable calcium unless you have a, a you know a, a pregnant bitch in tetany, uh, a cow with milk fever, or if the bearded dragon comes in and it is in fact in tetany, where the whole thing is twitching like this. You might want to put him on a very controlled dose, like seven. Units per kilogram per hour of of calcium until the tetany resolves, and then you switch to oral. Injectable calcium is life, emergency, life saving only. It is not for treating broken bones or chronic osteomalacia. Uh, so I want to make sure that's important because people still do it. Um, the other thing too is you know don't throw betrol at them. They come in and they're not eating. Uh, oh, let's put, let's put them on Betrul just in case. No antibiotic stewardship we don't want to be just throwing antibiotics out there, okay. okay unless you can see that this animal has some evident infection okay don't just give them antibiotics they don't need it. this animal is a this is a husbandry issue it's a supplement issue um, so just to kind of wrap this up you know again, most of these cases in the signalment that you presented are going to be nutritional they're going to be husbandry. Um, 90% of the homework is going to be the owner mm-hmm. following your instructions and correcting the problems on their end. You're just kind of helping them along, and they will do really well, okay? Um, even some of these lizards that come in with pathological spinal fractures, reptiles are neat. That's why they've been around for so many millions of years. They have spinal ganglia. You can take a lizard's back and cut it right in half, and the spinal ganglia allow them to walk. Their front feet do this. The back feet may do this. In other words, the back feet and the front feet don't talk to each other, but they still manage to get around. Yeah. And they, because of the spinal ganglia where they're located, they can still defecate and urinate. So just because it has a broken back, don't say, oh, this animal's going to have to be euthanized. If the owner wants to keep trying, man, as a veterinarian, we owe it to them to hold their hand and get them through this. Because a lot of these reptiles will get through it. Yeah. And you just have to be patient. And that's what a lot of people, they don't have the experience enough to know that, hey, let's hang in there for three, four months. This animal will probably turn around. So I kind of want to end with that on a happy note. The majority of these animals will do well if you
0: identify and correct the problems. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for that. I, let me ask you, I have one more quick question. When we talk about, about pain control, and I thought that was really just a, a great point of things that people may not, may not think about that are truly important. If we're going to see, you know, slow resolution of symptoms, you know, we're looking at four weeks, things like that. How long do you manage pain control? Is that also sort of a four week uh, process, things like that? Well, walk, walk, me, walk me through some analgesia during this process. Cause I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to overdo it, but I also don't want to underserve them. You know, that That's a
1: super good question because 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 anything you give an animal is a potential side effect. In long-term use of NSAIDs, you worry about liver disease, kidney disease, potential GI ulcers. Um, That's a good question. And that's where I think you as the eyes on the ground, um, when an animal starts looking more BAR, Mm -hmm. and the owner is going to be able to tell that because they see that animal every day, Um, and you'll check it on rechecks. And then I usually say eating. You know, when they start eating again, oftentimes they're feeling good enough that they can stop the analgesics. But clearly, if they start eating, you stop the analgesics and eating stops, you may want to put them back on it. But I oftentimes use appetite as one of my my goal standards. And yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. So, uh, Doug, where can people find you online? Well, you know, I, I have a website. It's DougMader.com. Uh, I also have a public Facebook page. It's uh, Douglas Mater on Facebook. Um, and from there you can reach out. If you have questions, you can email me and I'm pretty good about getting back to people. Um, so feel free to reach out if you need some help. And you know what, I just, Andy, I just want to say thanks again for having me on. Uh, I think we have one of the greatest professions in the world. Um, I hear a lot of people say, I would never do this again. And I'll tell you what, I've been doing it for nearly four decades. I would do it all over again starting tomorrow. (laughs) I love it. I love what we do. That human-animal bond is so special. And anything we can do to keep that thing going and, and your podcast and helping educate veterinarians, technicians, and then the pet owners is the way we do this. So thank you.
0: Oh, thank you, my friend. And that is our episode, guys. That's that's what I got for you. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of it. I got a lot of it. I I don't remember the last time I took as many notes as I took on this uh, episode. I anyway, thanks again to Dr. Mater for being here. Uh, What um, man, that guy is incredible. Anyway, that's enough of me fanboying over uh, Doug Mater. You guys take care of yourself. Have a wonderful week and I'll talk to you later.